The International Association for Near-Death Studies presents NDE Radio, a weekly exploration of near-death experiences and similar encounters with the other side. Now, here's your host, Lee Whitting. Welcome to NDE Radio, brought to you by IANS, the International Association for Near-Death Studies. I'm your host, Lee Whitting. Our return guest today, Joseph Marino, is a former Benedictine monk who has been studying the Shroud of Turin since 1977. He and his late wife, Sue Benford, uh, first presented a, a paper on the subject uh, back in 1988 and have continued, he's continued his research uh, and right up until uh, 2011. Joe wrote a book titled Wrapped Up in the Shroud, and uh, which is available through Amazon. And uh, we covered his the beginning of this um, story uh, on last week's show. If anyone has uh, out there has not listened to last week's show, I'd recommend you get to our past shows button and um, bring yourself up to date. Joe, welcome back to NDE Radio. Thanks, Lee. It's good to be back with you. <laughs> well, listen, where we left off, we were we had covered pretty much the history of the shroud and some of the other uh, sources of evidence of its authenticity. But then uh, we were just getting into the carbon-14 thing, which was all over the press at the time. So why don't you uh, tell us um, about that and uh, what you and Sue discovered um, in your thinking about it? Sure. So um, on October 13, 1988, the, there was a press conference at the British Museum and um, Michael Tite of the British Museum, which uh, oversaw the uh, shroud dating, and then two representatives from the Oxford Lab, one of the three that dated it, uh, released the results and said that, that they had a chalkboard behind them, and it said 1260 to 1390 exclamation point, which mm. most people feel was, was very unscientific, adding the exclamation point. Uh and, you know, for, for a lot of people, that, that settled the question. People thought, well, I guess it's a fake. And, um, but those of us that had studied the Shroud for a long time just knew something was wrong because all the other evidence, you know, that had been gathered since 1898 had suggested that it was um, authentic. And the CERT team from 1978 had spent five days with the cloth and then concluded that it was uh, not the product of an artist. Um, they had produced something like, um, tw- there was 24 peer-reviewed articles about it, and they, they felt that the image could not be explained. And so, and I personally, at that point, um, I had expected the date to come out um, first century, and um, when it didn't, I thought, there is something wrong with that carbon-14 test. And the carbon-14 um, test can, can be accurate, but I think it's certainly overrated. There's, there's plenty of dates that I have found to be wrong, and sometimes they don't even know why it's wrong, and uh, they often throw out a carbon-14 test even if they don't know why it was wrong. But in the popular mind, in the popular press, it's the be-all and end-all, and I don't really think there's an agenda with the shroud. I think a lot of people are afraid to see an authentic shroud because of the possible ramifications of that. 
And so they, a lot of people just accepted the date and said, okay, it's a fake. But I continued to do my research. And um, in um, 2000, Sue and I presented, uh, well, let me back up a little bit. Sue and I originally thought that the, the date might have been skewed by the radiation that probably emitted at the time of the res- resurrection. And, and threw the carbon-14 content off. Mm. But um, I guess it was either late 99 or early 2000, Sue got her, one of her spiritual insights that I talked about last week. Um, and she said she got an insight that it was a repair. So I have one of the best... Uh, personal English language collections uh, of material materials in the world. I've been collecting everything I could get my hands on since 1977. So we started looking at photos and, and um, uh, papers and different things, and we discovered that there were some indications that um, the shroud had been repaired at different times. So we kind of put our nose to the groans, uh Grindstone and, and put together a paper, which we presented in Orvieto, Italy, in August of 2000. And um, after the paper was delivered, Barry Schwartz came up to us and said um, that he would like to put that paper on his website, Shroud.com. So, um, you know, we said sure, and uh, Barry published it. And uh, the stirp chemist, Ray Rogers... Um, who had initially accepted the carbon-14 results, kind of took Barry um, to the task and and kind of complained that Barry was publishing uh, stuff from the lunatic fringe. That's Ray Rogers (laughs) doing part of the lunatic. Um, Ray was really the only person in the world that would be able to prove or disprove it because he still had samples from the main part of the shroud that he had had from the study in 1978. And he also had part of the Rhea sample, which was right next to the C14 sample. And so probably had the same characteristics. And Hmm. he told Barry, I I can prove these people wrong in five minutes. And, And Barry said, well, Ray, go for it. So about hour and a half later, Ray called Barry back and said, I can't believe it. I think they're right. So uh, Ray ended up writing a paper in a a high-end chemical journal called Thermochemica Acta, and he concluded that he he had found dye and cotton, and, you know, the shroud is all linen and shouldn't have cotton. Yes. And uh, cotton is easier to dye, so he found a, a mordant, a binder that, that, you know, bind the uh, the cotton to the cloth. He found a a, a spliced end, uh, spliced thread with cotton at one end and linen at the other, and he concluded that you know the there was a repair there. Uh, it was done to fool you know the eye to make it look like the original shroud, and. Um, there is there was a technique known in France. We found out later at the time called invisible French re- reweaving, mm-hmm. 
takes a lot of time, but it was owned by the House of Savoy at that time, and they certainly would would have had the time and money to do it. It was owned by uh, Margaret of Austria at the time, and she had access to the the best weavers in the world, and they would have been able to um, do this uh, invisible reweaving. I was listening to a, a, a negative podcast the other day, and and the guy says, well, if, if they would have been able to see when they took the sample if there was an, an invisible reweaving. It's, it's like, well, if it's invisible, you're not going to see it. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, and then, you know, Ray wasn't content with his own findings. He sent it, uh, some samples to a microscopist named um, John Brown, who's now deceased, um, and he confirmed Ray's findings. And then... There was a nine-person team uh, at Los Alamos National Laboratories that also got um, one of the Reyes samples, and um, they confirmed Ray's findings. And then eventually, Ray was actually given a leftover sample of the C-14 sample in 1988. It kept a a portion aside, and um, he found the thing, as he thought, he did find the same character chemical characteristics in the C14 sample as he had in the Reyes sample, and he concluded in his paper that the sample used for the C14 dating was not representative of the main shroud, and thus the C14 date was invalid. Mm. Well, this was uh, almost 15 years ago that this... Uh discovery was made, why haven't they done another sample from the original shroud? Um, well, part, part church politics, and some some scientists believe that, um, you know, that unless they have more information, they're not sure uh, another C-14 test um would be appropriate at this time. There are other dating methods, actually. We could get into that, possibly. But, um, you know, the, the opinion is, is is divided on whether another test should be done, especially given the fact that uh, the, the the shroud was kept in a container w- which was sprayed with thymol, and oh. that killed bacteria and different things. And some scientists believe that that would... Uh, skew the C14 content, and that's why a lot of them wouldn't want to see um, another C14 test done. But there's uh, an Italian scientist named Giulio Fonti who did um, three different tests, dating tests, and um, the combined uh, range that he came up with was like, I think it was 33 BC plus or minus 250 years. And then um, Ray Rogers had also come up with another way to, to date it um, based on the, the amount of vanillin left in the cloth. And um, if you combine that with the other three tests, the, the range for the four tests, Julio's three, three tests and um, Ray Rogers' vanillin test, the range is about 50 AD plus or minus 250 years. So that puts it in the, the first century range. So the... Conference in Catania that was held recently addressed that C14 test and said that the the data was suspect. The the labs did not release their 
raw data. Mm-hmm. Um, all strip there, they had a, a, a range of about 200 years difference in the carbon dating, which they shouldn't have had if that was a homogeneous cloth. The fact that there was a 200-year range suggested that it was, um, you know, that there were different pieces of cloth there. Um, right. So... What, what about the, what about the, uh, just, I mean, if the cloth was in a flood in 525 AD and then it was, um, uh, in a fire, um, wouldn't that affect the carbon to some extent too? Uh, possibly. Um, that's another thing, you know, when, when it comes to the shroud, you'll find that whatever idea or opinion you have, you'll find people on both sides of the, <laughs> the question. Mm-hmm. Um, now, Ray Rogers said that they have some carbonized material when they removed, they did a restoration on it in 2002, and they collected some 30 vials of of carbonized um, material that were neat beneath the patches that the mm-hmm. nuns had put on in 1934. And um, he said that that would be perfectly good to use for a carbon-14 test. Oh. So, uh, and it's up, it's really up to the Pope. He's the, the living Pope is the owner of the shroud and he's the one that um, makes decisions on, on whether new testing will be done. And, um, I don't think anything is going to be done soon because, um, the art, current Archbishop of Turin, who would be, of course, involved in the, uh, any, testing because he's the custodian uh he's turning 75 and will be resigning and um the pope doesn't seem overly interested in doing testing at the moment so it it probably any testing that probably won't be done until the next pope Hmm. what uh what tests have been run on the blood on the cloth uh well heller and adler um both deceased. They did um, 13 different tests that proved that it was um, real blood. Now, they, they were real careful. Um, Adler did not really say that it was um, human blood. He, he stopped only in saying it was primate blood. Um, but it's it's pretty clear. And then there's a, a new a scientist um, named Kelly Kurse who's who's a blood expert and um he says that the, the blood type is ab which is um kind of rare among the world population but but very prevalent among the jewish population so and of course you have people on the other side that say oh no it's not blood it's it's vermilion or iron oxide or something like that but there's pure heller and Adler have several uh peer-reviewed articles um, showing that it's real blood, and and their articles, all the Sterp articles actually uh, can be found on Barry uh, Schwartz's website, Shroud.com. Um, you can find it; that is just the best site in the world to go to. Um, you can spend the rest of your life there. Uh, but all <laughs> all of the Sterp papers are now there. I think they were put up only about a year ago, and um, people can can read on their own. A lot of them, of course, are very technical. And there's some less, uh, 
There's a good one on, on Barry's site by a guy named David Ford, I think, on the blood. It's, it's more um, geared to kind of the, the common layman. Uh, I might suggest that uh, people uh, look at that article if they're interested in the blood. And there's a, you can look up um, articles by the title or, or by the author. And, and the author, that one is uh, David Ford, F-O-R-D. And um, he's got a good one on the blood that people can read. Mm. Well, I had mentioned earlier um, some of the some of the things that seem to be verification that it's authentic, including the location of the wounds and the weave in the cloth and the pollen from the Middle East and the blood being red because a, a torture victim's Billy Rubin would be high. What? What would you all and of course, maybe primarily the fact that nobody's been able to replicate the image. They don't know exactly how it got there. What would you say to your way of thinking is the most persuasive argument that this is authentic? Um, well, I'll give you first a cop out answer. I think it's, it's a combination of everything. But um, <laughs> another characteristic we haven't mentioned yet which I think is really incredible, is the fact that the image resides only on the several top thousands of an inch of the fibers. Okay, so a fiber, an individual thread, is made up of about 200 microfibers. The image resides only on the top one to two microfibers of the thread. And that it, it, it's uniform front and back, hmm. and there's no there's no way an artist can do that. I mean, it took a laser to approximate getting that depth. There's no artistic method um, that can do that uniformly front and back on a on a full length body, and you know some some art some uh, skeptics say that they duplicated the shroud, don't believe it. Um, they can get something that remotely looks like the shroud image. And keep in mind, they use the actual real image of the shroud to make their image. So what did the original shroud artist use for his his model? Um, but nobody has, able, has been able to duplicate getting the chemistry and the physics right. So, you know, you got a three-dimensional, negative, superficial, um, uniform intensity um, image. There, there's just, you know, I, I've got a friend of mine that gives shroud lectures, and he says, well, I'll give it 10% that, um, you know, an artist um, may have been able to do it. I, I'm nowhere near 10%. I'm about, I'm about as close to zero as you can get. When you and Sue talked about this, you must have envisioned the moment of resurrection. How, how did you see it? Did you see it as a burst of light? Um, did you have any insight uh, as to what it might have looked like? Um, not really, but I think personally now, if, you know, I do think that, um, some sort of light is is probably the the most likely explanation. Um, in light of 
includes some heat, but it's obviously whatever it was, it was very controlled. Um, you know, of course, we cannot reproduce a resurrection in a lab, um, but you'll find a lot of scriptural references about light related to God. And I yes. do do think, you know, if you take what the Italian scientist said, can you imagine a one forty billionth of a second burst of light? Um, you know, I don't think it can 100% prove the resurrection, but boy, you know, you're not going to get any better evidence than this, I think. Mm. I think it's very easy to connect the image on the shroud, even though we can't prove it, to connect that with the resurrection. Because there's no other person in the world that, um, you know, rose from the dead. Um, and I think it's, uh, I think God always re- leaves room for a little bit of faith. You know, in hindsight, I told you, I said previously, I expected the, the 1988 date to come out first century. And uh, in hindsight, I thought, no, that, that would have been too easy. God God it would never make it that obvious because he wants people to have faith. And mm. so I think one of the reasons for the Shroud is to make us think and to make us ask more questions and not necessarily to kind of prove it, although for many people it comes close to doing that. And I'm aware of many people actually, myself included, whose whose life was turned upside down by the shroud and you know, it led me to the monastery and it led me out of the monastery and I'm aware of a lot of other um, people, including the Sterp scientist uh, whose lives uh, it changed. There's a scientist named uh, John German on the Sterp team who is agnostic and um, he's a Christian now because of his his study on the shroud. So I think it's there more to make us think than anything else. Hmm. Barry Schwartz, who ha- who does um, Shroud.com, uh, gave a TED talk that I watched that uh, where he makes a uh, quite an issue of the fact that he's Jewish and yet he's he's running this largest of websites on the Shroud. And uh, have you ta- ever talked to him about how it might have affected his faith? Oh yeah, Barry and I talk all the time. Um, you know, I guess there's a similarity there. People. People wonder why he hasn't converted to being a Christian, uh, if he believes it's authentic. Mm-hmm. And he kind of feels like his credibility is actually elevated by the fact that he's not a Christian. Um, but he, he did feel that the Shroud helped him come back to his own Jewish faith. And I think... Barry, like, you know, Sue and I, we, we, we feel that God has called us to, uh, to a special mission with it. And, um, you know, we, we have to go with what we feel God is calling us to do and not what other people expect us to, how, how to react. Of course. Well, there is also a Messianic Judaism. Uh, there's a, some very right. ser- serious Jews of, that I know who uh, who believe that uh, Jesus was their Messiah, that uh, and it fits perfectly into their faith. They they're very comfortable with uh, all of the traditions of Judaism and and the fact that Jesus was Jewish, especially uh, 
you know, puts the icing on the cake, is so to speak. Um, where, yeah, where do you think this? Oh, uh, I was gonna, going to ask you where. Um, well, you're doing a conference uh, at Redeemer University College in uh, uh, Canada. Yeah. That's yeah, coming up in August. T- t- talk a little about what you're going to be discussing there. Well, I have um, I have a 75 minute keynote address called uh, "The Invisible Reweave and Other Challenges to the 1988 C14 Dating a Review," and so mm-hmm. I, I I'm giving I have about 90 slides with it, and I'm going to be talking about all the evidence that Sue and I and that I've accumulated since Sue Sue died, um, all the evidence for the reweave. And then I also address like six or seven other um, possible explanations of why why the C14 dating was wrong. Um, and um, I'll tell you what, I'm gonna, 75 minutes sounds like a long time, but I'm going to need every minute of that. And I, w- I think I'm going to probably go, I wouldn't be surprised if I go a couple minutes over. But um, And I also have two 30-minute presentations. Um, and this was um, this has to do with a possible image uh, formation hypothesis that Sue and I worked on in, in the early 2000s, and it's really kind of outside the box. Um, and um, it's not really along the lines of a light, but it can be compatible with it. Um, and it's really a part one and two. The part one is kind of background. It has to do with quantum holography. And, mm. uh, part, part two is how specifically, uh, related to the shroud. And, uh, this, this paper was so far out, out of the mainstream that, um, we, we couldn't get it published anywhere in, or in a journal or at a conference in the early 2000s. And um, this um, conference organizer was open to it, so I kind of we, we had four versions of the paper, and um, I put you know combined them all and have two 20-minute presentations that um, I think it's people are going to probably raise some eyebrows with it, but it should be fun. Um, yeah. Well, that's that's there seems to be now. I'm just this is just my impression. I'm going to ask you if. if if I'm right on this, but uh, suddenly a, a much more uh, revived interest in the in the shroud right about now, and I'll give you some examples that about in uh, last year apparently they came up with a 3D life size model of the body based on the shroud, which uh, there are pictures on uh, the internet about. It was beautifully done. Uh, in April of this year, the Museum of the Bible in Washington D.C. announced plans for a permanent shroud display. Uh, May 4th, uh, two months ago, uh, there was a dedication of the Museum of Holy Shroud at the Cathedral of St. John in Shreveport. And then on the 23rd of May, the, the Catania conference that we mentioned. And now you're going to be speaking in August in Canada. So is this uh, out of the ordinary that there's so much going on right now? Um, it does seem a little more intensive than normal. Um, as I say, I kind of keep up. Um, day to day with things and kind of keep aware 
of, of the different things that go on. And of course, usually the shroud's more popular, most popular around Lent and Easter time, and uh, secondarily at Christmas time. But I think because, yeah, the, the Turin Shroud, uh, the Turin Center has had some workshops on conservation, and then there's been the news about the uh, raw data from the 88 dating that came out, and um, they renamed the center in, in Turin recently. So, yeah, there, there has been um, quite a bit uh, more activity recently. It would mm-hmm. be nice if they, um, they would allow some testing. The, the next um, public exposition is going to be 2025, but I've that they're going to bring it out um, just for World Youth Day. Uh, sometime later this year, I guess. I guess within the next couple months. Um, oh, to put put it on yeah, display uh, in Turin. Yeah, just for the World Youth Group. Oh, but not for the general public. Correct. That uh, won't happen until twenty twenty five. Twenty twenty five. I would think that you know, given all the problems the Catholic Church has seen in, in current in, in these current days, that they would want to uh, remind people. Of these uh, essential elements of the faith that uh, that um, you know people forget, you know they get caught up in the day to day news and they forget the importance of um, of uh, of the essentials of faith. They get lost in the in the politics and the details. Anyway, um, let's see, Joe. Tell tell uh, the audience how they can find your book, where they can. Um, Find your book and, and any other books that you might recommend um, on the subject. Um, okay, my book uh, you can find on Amazon, and for some reason it won't come up uh, if you search by my name, but it will come up uh, if you if you look up the title, Wrapped Up in the Shroud, A Chronicle of a Passion. And then Sue's autobiography uh, is called Strong Woman, and that's also um, available on um on Amazon as well and both both books can also be gotten at uh, Barnes and Noble as well um as far as um other books uh one of the most comprehensive one uh recent ones is is called Test the Shroud by a friend of mine uh Mark Antonacci that came out in 2015 uh I would also recommend really any any of the books by by Ian Wilson. He's a top-notch writer. I think he's had three or four books on the Shroud. Uh, his 2010 one, uh, for some reason, wasn't marketed in the United States. I think you have to get, I think I got mine from Amazon uh, UK. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's there's a, there's a ton of them out there. Barry's got a book list section on his site. Um, as I say, if you go to his site, you, you can you can spend hours and hours and days and days there. Well, you said a lifetime, <laughs> but it would be a it would be a lifetime well spent, I'm sure. Hey, Joe, thank you so much. I'm sorry we're out of time, uh, but thank you for doing two shows with us. And uh, I, I would just like to uh, encourage listeners who perhaps caught this show but not the past one to go to our past shows and look up last week's. Um, show with Joe on our website at nderadio.org. For information on IONS and the upcoming IONS conference in Valley Forge, Pennsylvania, check out that website 
IANDS.org. And join us again next Monday, 11 a.m. Eastern, for more NDE Radio. This is Lee Whitting saying thanks for listening.